Well, we're finishing up a series we've been in in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, last chapter is chapter 16. And what I want to do to get us started is to just read from verse 5 through the end of this chapter, through the end of this letter. And so if you got a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 16. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or wherever you are, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses up on the screen. Let's read. The Apostle Paul's words here, starting in verse 5. He's writing to these Christians in Corinth, and he says, as he finishes this letter, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want, you, uh, I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you for he is doing the work of the Lord just as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers." Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Another translation says, be mature, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. It's good to have some friends that refresh your spirit. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was their equivalent of a a sincere hug or, or some dap, you know, if we weren't in COVID. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians together, but I want to start with a question. Here's my question. What difference does the gospel make in your life? What difference does the gospel make in your life? And here's why I asked that question. Some of you know my story. You know that I grew up in church. My dad's here, been a pastor my whole life. And so I ain't know nothing but the church, right? My family, just generations of faithful Christians. I believed the gospel but there was a disconnect between what I said I believed and how I chose to live. And that's the kind of disconnect 
that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter to the Corinthians because, as we've already studied, Paul came to them, spread the gospel in Corinth. People started following Jesus, believing the gospel. But now after he's left, there's a disconnect. They say they believe the gospel, but they're not living in alignment with the gospel that they say they believe. So one writer said the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. In other words, instead of being shaped and driven and motivated by the gospel and bringing gospel influence to the culture, they were being shaped by the culture. It's as if they left the gospel behind and then decided that they were going to live however they wanted to live according to the principles of the world around them. And what I want you to know, and this is something I've said before, is something that God showed me in my life, that the gospel is not just the gate into the Christian life. The gospel is the ground of the Christian life. The gospel is not just necessary for eternal life. The gospel is necessary for everyday life. It's the foundation and motivation for everything we do as followers of Jesus. When you truly believe the gospel, when you receive Jesus into your, when you surrender to him as Savior and Lord, it changes everything in your life. And this is what we see Paul emphasizing in 1 Corinthians. Now, we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in 2019, y'all. Like some of y'all just started coming to our church during the pandemic in 2020. We started in 2019 in 1 Corinthians and we had to take a pause because of a pandemic, right? And so we had to pivot and we've had to address some different things from, from Scripture. And so we've kind of been in and out in these mini series through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so this sermon today is going to be a little different than normal. We're going to land in chapter 16, but in case you're new, I want to catch you up and take you on a guided tour of the whole letter. So we're going to start in chapter 1 and make our way to the end in chapter 16. So you can just go ahead and call your boss and tell him you're going to be late to work tomorrow because we're about to be in here for a while. Now we're going to move, we're going to move through this fast. So I want you to open your Bibles with me if you have them, because we're just going to flip through 1 Corinthians. And again, we'll have the verses on the screen. We're going to start in chapter one. And here's what I want you to see first. The gospel changes the way you view your identity. You see this right at the beginning of the letter. Now, we've studied this before. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the church of Corinth. And Paul is aware of all the things that are going wrong. And yet, listen to how he addresses them. Listen to how he addresses them. Chapter 1, verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And I want you to circle this word. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be, circle this word, saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You look at verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, he says, Jesus will sustain you to the end Circle this word, guiltless. 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Why? Because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, here's what Paul is doing. First, he's reminding them that their identity is not defined by society. All these different groups in the church of Corinth, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, and he's reminding them of their identity together as members of the church, their local church. That's why he says the church of God that is in Corinth. But they're also part of the global church together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their identity is not defined by society, but he's also reminding them that their identity is not defined by their sin. Did you catch what he said about them? Because the same is true or can be true about any of us who put our trust in Jesus. He calls them sanctified in Christ. That word sanctified means set apart for God's purposes. He calls them saints holy ones, those who have been made holy by God. He says that they will one day stand before God. And y'all, this is either untrue or scandalous, guiltless, innocent before God. Listen, when you trust Jesus and believe the gospel, you are born again into God's family. And now you have a completely new identity in him. And not because you deserve it or somehow earned it, but because Jesus became our substitute. He took our sins so that we could have his righteousness. He experienced the judgment of God the Father so that we could enjoy eternal fellowship with the Father. And so now everything has changed. And so sin may still describe you, but sin no longer defines you. Oh yeah, if that's good news, you can feel free to clap. It might describe you, there may be sin, and I promise you there is sin in your life, but in Christ, your sin no longer defines you. You've been given a new identity. And here's why that's so important, because everything we do as Christians flows from who we are in Christ. That identity is set and sealed and does not change. Now, I mentioned that my family's here, my parents are, are here. And so I want to tell just a couple of stories about them over the course of this sermon. And, and we've, we've never even talked about this since it, since it happened. But when I was in college, and some of you have heard me tell this story before, my freshman year in college, remember, I, this was me not following Jesus. And so I moved out of my parents' house. I moved to the University of Maryland. And that first winter break, I'm kind of used to college hours and nobody told me that college hours are not like transferable under the roof of your parents. And so for me, I go out and I'm like, I ain't got to be home at no particular time. You know what I'm saying? I'm grown. And so I brought that home on Christmas break. I just decided that I was just going to show up at the house at like three o'clock in the morning. Now I pulled up. Now my dad, you didn't hear. Some of y'all heard him. He said, not good. He said, not good. It wasn't. I pulled up to the house 
And it dawned on me that I had made a tragic mistake. And I was so afraid. This is winter break, y'all. It's in the middle of the wintertime. I was so afraid that, y'all, I just slept in the car. (laughs) I was so afraid to walk in the house, y'all. I just slept in the car. I ain't even had no gas. I'm on a college budget. I just turned that thing off and I just, I just slept in the car. And my hope was that I can like sneak my way in. But you know, parents, you know what I'm saying? They got these alarm systems that go off when you open the door. And so I, I walk in and my mom comes down the stairs and she's like, where have you been? I know that's just not the question. That's not the question you want to get. Teenagers, please take notes. If you miss everything in 1 Corinthians, write this down. You don't want to hear that. Where have you been? And so I explained to her that I stayed up out past curfew and I was just too afraid to just come in the house. And her response, my mother's response, surprised me because tears filled her eyes. And she said, son, This is your home. Like, we're your family. You don't ever have to sleep in the car. Now, I don't know if my dad would have said that, but he was upstairs and he was was asleep. But listen to me. Some of us, because we don't know our identity in Christ, some of us, when we sin, we either stay in that sin or we stay in our shame. And God in Christ has become our heavenly father. And he says, you have a new identity now. You are my son. You are my daughter. You don't have to stay away from me. In fact, I sent Jesus to you and I've given you a new identity so that when you sin, grace abounds even more. Your sin should drive you to me in humility and in surrender. The gospel gives us a new identity. The gospel also changes the way we view ministry. You see this in the rest of chapter one, all the way through chapter four. Because Corinth was one of the largest and most influential cities in first century Greece. It was a hot spot for celebrity speakers and philosophers that would come through town on tour and they would draw huge crowds. And so leaders in that culture were measured by how prominent they were or how smart or entertaining or articulate they were. And that celebrity mentality was starting to creep into the Corinthian church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Why? Verse 12, he says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or I follow Christ. See, Paul was the founding pastor of the Corinthian church. He started the church there. Apollos was raised in Alexandria, the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, and he was known for his eloquent public speaking There's some Jewish Christians there who've been impacted by the Apostle Peter's ministry. And then there were some people that were taking pride and saying, I don't follow none of that. I just follow Jesus. And they were all just creating division because of it. So what's happening is that instead of uniting around the truth and power of the gospel, the church was dividing into different camps. 
And they were using these popular Christian leaders almost like mascots for their Christian team. And Christians do the same thing today. We build our ideas of ministry and leadership on human wisdom and human power rather than on the wisdom and power of God revealed in the gospel. And so in chapters one through four, Paul has to re-educate them on how ministry really works. Listen, here's how it works. It takes supernatural power to produce supernatural results. It takes supernatural power to, to produce supernatural results. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he's describing his ministry. He says, listen, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. But listen, he says, but here's what my ministry did have. My ministry came in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, when I came, any results that you experienced in your life, it was because of a demonstration of the supernatural power of God. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Who is David Platt? Who is Lon? I mean, other than the size of my paycheck. Who is Lon Solomon? Who are these preachers and leaders except servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now listen, listen. I praise God for all that God has done through this church. I've seen God work in incredible ways through this church. As long as I've been here, our church has been blessed, overwhelmingly blessed financially. As long as I've been here, we've had stages and lights and staff and cameras. As long as I've been here, we've had radio and social media and websites and all this stuff. But can I tell you something? Budgets cannot raise spiritually dead people to life. Programs cannot change the human heart. And I don't know if you figured it out so far in my sermon yet, but my preaching cannot in and of itself produce anything supernatural in your heart. The only thing that makes this church and any church effective is the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the power of the gospel. And so the gospel changes the way you view ministry, but it also changes the way you view sin. I remember teaching a Bible study at the University of Maryland a few years ago, and I used the word sin a few times. And after a while, one of the students raised his hand. And he said, can I ask a question? He says, you keep using this word sin. What does that mean? And he went on to explain that he doesn't believe in the idea of sin in any objective sense. He believes that everybody lives according to their own truth. And nobody can define what's right or wrong for you as an individual. You have to define that for your own life. And as long as you're not harming anybody else, we should all accept that. 
And that's the perfect snapshot of the culture we live in. We live in a culture that has largely rejected the authority of God. And so we become the ultimate authority. We define and redefine right and wrong according to our personal desires or popular opinion. And Paul's concern is not that the broader society had embraced that view of sin. Paul's concern is that the church was embracing that view of sin. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. See, in their original language, the word translated sexual immorality is a broad term that means any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And when we preach through this section of 1 Corinthians, Several months ago at this point, we paused and we did a short series, a whole series just on sexuality. And you can access that and other resources at mcclainbible.org slash sexuality. But this is a member of the church who professes to be a Christian and he's in a romantic relationship with his stepmother. Listen, he's not struggling with sin. He's fully and publicly embracing sin to the point where everybody knows about it. And you can imagine some folks saying, who are we to tell him who he can and can't love? Love is love. And you've probably seen that phrase, love is love, on a yard sign or, or a bumper sticker. And maybe you actually buy into that mantra. And listen, I appreciate the heart behind that phrase because we don't want to rob anybody of the joy of experiencing and expressing true love. Like we were made to love and to be loved. But all of us, listen, all, even the most non-religious people among us, all of us measure love by some standard. All of us use some standard to determine the boundaries of appropriate love. Like maybe that standard for you is consent or age. Maybe it's harm. If it's harmful, it's outside the boundaries of being appropriate. But the funny thing is there's some cultures that don't have those same boundaries. Well, according to the Bible, God is the one who created us, and he is the one who defines and sets the boundaries for love and sexual relationships. And Paul points that out. He points out that according to God, this man is living in bold, unrepentant sin. And his church family, as his church family, they need to lovingly but seriously confront him about it. And it seems here that it's even to the point where Paul says they may even need to remove him from church membership for a season, hoping that he'll turn from his sin and submit to God. That's how serious God is about sin. See, sometimes sin can be so normal to us that we think it's acceptable to God. And not just sexual sin. 
Paul confronts them about all kinds of sin throughout this letter. He rebukes them in chapter 6 because they're suing each other in court over petty disputes. And that's become so common for them that they don't even see anything wrong with it. Sin has become so normal that they think it's acceptable. And we've been there before. Let me tell you another story about my parents real quick. Not about their sin, but... (laughs) It's my dad's birthday, and so me and my brothers, we were, uh, and my mom were taking, taking my dad to, to dinner for his birthday. My mom had got him a hotel room down in D.C., and they were spending the weekend together. And, and so I said, hey, I'll come pick y'all up and take you to the restaurant. And so I'm driving down to the restaurant, and one thing you got to know about my dad, <clears throat> a lot of things you got to know about my dad. We just don't have time. But <clears throat> one thing you got to know about my dad is his car is pristine, 365 days out of the year. His car is pristine. He doesn't have anything in his car. He don't have a piece of paper. He don't have a, a, a receipt. Like who in the world don't have no receipts sitting in, 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 in their car? That's what, the, that's what the ashtray and all that is for, right? He has nothing. He doesn't even have nothing in his trunk. I'm not even exaggerating. Nothing. It is pristine. It is clean. And so I'm on my way to pick up my parents and, and it doesn't really dawn on me until I pull up that my car is less than pristine. <laughs> now, I got three young kids, so I just kind of use that as an excuse, but it's not really, not really an excuse. But y'all, it was crazy. I didn't even realize until I saw them about to come downstairs that it was like, I think I found like Happy Meals in the car, all, all, all kinds of things that were growing. And just, it was crazy. And when they're coming down, I got an SUV, so thankfully I was throwing toys back in the back and all this kind of stuff. Listen, what changed? That stuff had been in my car the whole time. Didn't bother me at all. The only thing that changed is that I started to see my car according to his standard, not my own. And this is what happens when God comes into our life. See, sin becomes so normal to us that we think it's acceptable to God and it becomes acceptable to us. And one of the things God does in the gospel is that he doesn't just flatter us in our sin. In the gospel, Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth about our sin. He reveals to us what has been acceptable and normal to us and shows us not just the fact that we have sinned, but the fact that our sin is infinitely offensive to a holy God. And he begins to reveal that in our hearts and in our conscience and the things that used to be fun to us all of a sudden start to feel a little different. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is what God does for us in the gospel. He tells us the truth about our sin, not in order to condemn us, but in order to draw us to himself, in order to show us that he has provided the solution to our sin in Jesus. And so the gospel changes the way we view not just sin, but the way we view all areas of our life, including marriage. The gospel changes the way you view marriage. We studied that in chapter 7 where Paul addresses several different groups of people. People who were married, people who had never been married, people who were engaged to be married, people who used to be married. So widows and people who had been divorced. 
And he addresses some of the unique issues facing each group. And I won't reteach all the specifics, but here's what those groups had in common. In chapter seven, many of them were wrestling with this question. And some of you have wrestled with this question. Is my marital status causing me to miss out on God's best for my life? Is my marriage causing me to miss out? Is my singleness causing me to miss out? Because of some of the distorted teaching that was floating around, some of them were wondering if they needed to change their marital status in order to somehow upgrade their spiritual status. But Paul wants them to realize that God has called them to live out his purposes right now, no matter what their marital status or situation is. God, through Paul, comes to them and says, I have purpose for you right now. Marriage and singleness, we saw this, are both opportunities to glorify God and display the gospel in different but equally significant ways. And so this is just a side note, y'all. In church, we have to stop treating marriage like it's a graduation from singleness. Marriage is not a measure of maturity and singleness is not the waiting room. God has purpose for you in any season of your life, no matter what your marital status is. That's why he says in chapter 7, verse 17, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. God says, I have calling and purpose for you right now. All right, we're up to chapter 8. We got we to move. We got to move. The gospel also changes the way you view your decisions. We saw this in chapters 8 through 10. Paul addresses a question about whether or not it's okay for Christians to eat meat from an idol's temple. And that seems weird to us, but in that culture, it was a big issue because Corinth was filled with temples that were dedicated to idol worship. And so some Christians say it's totally fine because I can eat the meat without worshiping the idol. They said, listen, I have peace about this. Now, listen, if, you, if you're new to Christianity or whatever, let me, just put, let me just tell you. Like when Christians say, I have peace about this, that's their way of saying, I don't want you in my business. I have peace about this. This is a personal decision. There's no black and white chapter and verse in the Bible that says I can't do it. So my conscience is clear. I'm going to do me, you do you. And Paul affirms the fact that Christians have freedom to develop personal convictions in areas that aren't black and white in Scripture. What you eat or drink, what you wear, what kind of music you listen to. We have freedom in areas that aren't black and white in Scripture. But in chapters 8 through 10, Paul says that as people who are surrendered to Jesus, our freedom is not the only factor in how we make decisions. We should consider how our decisions will affect other believers. We saw that in chapter 8. We should consider how our decisions will affect our gospel witness with unbelievers. That's chapter 9. And in chapter 10, Paul challenges Christians to consider whether our decisions will bring glory to God. That's why he says in chapter 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should be the goal of all of our decisions, including our decisions about how we relate to the church, because the gospel changes the way you view the church. I shared last week 
how this is something God had to do in my heart. I started following Jesus as a college student, and I thought the church was irrelevant. And I started to drift from the local church. But Paul says something so profound as you study this letter. In chapter 12, listen to what he says about the church. Chapter 12, verse 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, he says, so it is with Christ. This is where we get the phrase, the body of Christ, where Paul is saying, you are not just a Christian out on your own. You are a part of the family of God, and God wants you to be connected with brothers and sisters in a local church. One part of the body can't say, I I don't need you, and this part of the body can't say, I don't need you. We are all interconnected. And that changes everything in the church. In chapter 11, it affects the way men and women relate to and honor one another in the church. In the end of chapter 11, it it changes the way we, we take the Lord's Supper together. In chapters 12 through 14, it affects the way we serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says, to each follower of Jesus to every Christian is given, and I love this phrase, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. He says it's not about you. If you are a follower of Jesus, then God has given you his spirit and you have spiritual gifts. He's given you supernatural abilities in order to be a blessing and to help contribute to the common good of your local church. And Paul summarizes that common good in one word in chapter 13, and it's love. That love should motivate how we serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in the good times and in the bad. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And that's the perfect description of the memorial service I had the privilege of being a part of yesterday. Suffering and rejoicing together as we honored our sister Lorna Bituin. She is an active member of our Montgomery County location, always serving, always smiling the oldest of nine siblings with two adult sons that she loved and was proud of. And her death was and still is a shock to all of us. Like one minute she was doing fine and the next she was being rushed to emergency heart surgery and eventually passed away two days later on August 19th. And even in the midst of all that grief that filled the room at her memorial service, I wish you could have seen her siblings on the front row with their hands lifted high, praising and worshiping God. Why? Because they knew something, y'all. The gospel changes the way you view death. The gospel changes the way you view death. Let me ask you, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? How do you know? 
So a lot of us are just kind of guessing and making up our own thing. Well, the reason Christians are so confident about what happens to us after death is because we know and there is historical evidence to verify what happened to Jesus after his death. And so Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love that word, first fruits. It's a preview. It's the first signs that something else is coming. It's springtime when you see buds starting to show up on the trees. You see little blades of grass starting to poke up from the dirt. It is the first sign that there are some things that have been unseen that are about to be revealed, that there has been life underneath the surface that is getting ready to be made visible. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. It was a preview of the resurrection life that every single one of us in Jesus get the joy of experiencing now and extending into eternity. And listen, listen, we've talked about this. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we die and our souls go to be with the Lord. But on that day that Jesus returns, God says that our bodies will be raised and reunited with our souls and we will receive transformed, glorified bodies to live with God for all of eternity in this physical new world that God creates where heaven and earth become one. In our glorified bodies, we will experience the presence of God. So listen, listen, listen. Lorna Her last Sunday was August 15th. And you know what chapter that sermon was on that day? 1 Corinthians 15. She didn't know that that by the next Sunday, she would be in the presence of her Savior. But listen, let me, I want you to hear the last text of scripture she heard in her home church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of the gospel. That we don't have to fear death because death does not have the final word in the life of a person whose trust is in Jesus. Death is not a dead end. The candle doesn't get blown out. It's not just some empty void on the other side. 
for those who follow Jesus, who believe the promise of the gospel, our life ends up like Jesus's life, resurrected and glorified for all of eternity in the presence of God. The gospel changes the way you view death. And listen, because of the promise of the resurrection and the gospel also changes the way you view the rest of your life. Hallelujah. And this is why Paul ends chapter 15 with verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, therefore, since you know this life is not all there is, therefore, since you will be resurrected one day, just like Jesus was, therefore, in the meantime, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, if the gospel is true, then we have work to do. And that's what chapter 16 is all about as Paul finishes this letter. It's about the work of the Lord. Paul is in Ephesus doing the work of the Lord and he wants to visit them in Corinth so he can be a part of the work that God is doing there. Like we saw last week in verses 1 through 4, chapter 16, Paul's inviting them to join the work that God is doing to provide for the church in Jerusalem. Timothy is busy doing the work of the Lord. Apollos is busy doing the work of the Lord. Stephanus and Fortunatus and, and Achaicus and Aquila and Prissa are busy doing the work of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, listen, if the gospel is true, then the Lord also has work for us to do. If the gospel is true, then it makes absolutely no sense for us to just live for the things of this world. Not if the gospel is true. If we're comparing maybe 80 years, Lorna had 71, to infinity, it makes no sense for us to just live for the things of this world alone. We have work to do if the gospel is true. God has put us in this city at this time. He's put you in your neighborhood. He's put you at that job. He's put you in that school. Because the gospel is true and the gospel changes everything. It's not just the gate into the Christian life. It is the ground of the Christian life. It doesn't change, just change eternal life. It changes everyday life. It has to become the foundation and motivation for everything we do as followers of Jesus. And so listen, church family. The work of McLean Bible Church is not done. The gospel is still true, so God still has work for this church family to do in this city and beyond this city around the world. And that's why I'm excited for us to turn the corner into the fall. We're going to start, Lord willing, a study in the gospel of Mark. Why? Because if we're called to do the work of the Lord, let's spend some time looking at the work that the Lord Jesus did. And let's invite our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members to our church and to our homes to, to meditate on and reflect and learn more about this Jesus, this Jesus, listen, who lived the life you could not live, died the death that you deserve, and rose from the grave so that you could share in his resurrection life. This is the work of the Lord that Jesus did, and he invites us to receive that work and to be a part of that work in the world. Listen, let me ask you a question as we close. 
is the gospel just a ticket to heaven for you? Or is the gospel the foundation of your life? Do you just believe the gospel and just move on to live however you want to live? Or have you allowed God to take the truth of the gospel and work it so deep down in your heart that it begins to change and transform everything about your life? Because if the gospel is true, then Jesus is worthy of our full devotion. If it's not true, he's a liar. But the resurrection proves that it's true. And so if you're here today or you're watching, you're visiting at one of our locations, maybe you've never actually taken the time to consider what Jesus is saying to you, that he loves you, that he died to forgive your sins, and that he rose so that you could have eternal life. And maybe today you sense God working in your heart. The Bible says that if you want to be forgiven of your sin, if you want this relationship with God and eternal life with him, You can't do anything to earn it. All you do is give up control of your life, turn from your sin, and truly from your heart put your trust in Jesus. And he will forgive you and empower you by his spirit to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to do that as we close. I want to pray And if you are at a place where you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, I want to invite you just in the quietness of your own heart to just repeat after me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel. I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve anything good from you. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And God, I turn from my sin. I give up control of my life. And I give my whole life to you. Please save me. Please change me. Father, I pray for any person here or watching who prayed that from the sincerity of their heart. You know their heart, God. I pray, I pray the work you've begun in them today that you would bring it to completion even to the day of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would work in their hearts, draw them to you. I pray that the roots of the gospel would go deep and it would bear fruit that remains. And I pray for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, that there would not be this disconnect. God, would you make us people individually, but together as a church family who live lives that are driven by this good news of the gospel and that put that gospel on display for the world to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.